I invite your attention as we begin the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. Beginning at verse 24, you will recognize this chapter as those number of parables that the Lord spoke. Verse 24, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then if you'll follow down to verse 36, we have the Lord's own interpretation of his parable. Then sent Jesus, then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The text that we have just read, I will for a bit of time lay by. But we shall, I promise, take it up again as we draw to a conclusion and hope by it to reinforce all that shall have been said in today's study. The mandate that I received for this study was a Review of the connection between infant baptism and state churches. Tracing the contours of that mandate, I have found it to be more challenging than would appear at first glance. It seems to fall into that category of the student who knows the correct answer. But as in mathematics, the teacher says to him, show thy work. Put another way, knowing the answer, the difficulty is working backward to properly state the question. While forests of paper and rivers of ink have been pressed into nearly countless volumes. 
The student of this subject will find that the authors upon this subject have generally contented themselves to tell, on one hand, the history of state churches, and on the other hand, the history of infant church membership. But exceedingly few have endeavored to, as it were, connect the dots between the two. You will understand, of course, that paedo-baptist writers, having no interest in exposing infant membership as an innovation, have simply assumed the positive. That is, it has always been and therefore is. And that is the sum of their argument. Boiled down. Anti-Pedobaptists have, in large part, done some disservice in their works by simply, to return to our mathematical analogy, assume the connection between the two as an axiom. And proceeding to work out various examples from their proof. While you will know that we may make only the smallest of beginnings today toward proving the axiom, as it were, I hope to be able to give us a solid foundation upon which a sturdy superstructure may be erected. Moving forward then, let me begin by making some introductory observations. First, it is practically speaking impossible to address the subject of state churches without delving deeply into the related topic of the politics of Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire in the 5th century. The two, that is, state churches and infant church membership, the two became inextricably linked due to the rising power of the Roman church that in many ways stepped into the void when imperial Rome breathed its last. To do even the slightest justice to a consideration of the creation, destruction, and reformation of European states for nearly a thousand years has traditionally required semester or semesters of college-level study and thus cannot be fit neatly within our few minutes here today. It must suffice, for our purposes at least, to note the following, that kings and conquerors and those who would be such did not scruple to use the church and we will put that in quotation marks, did not scruple to use the church for their personal political ends among those that they ruled and among those that they wished to rule. Then too, the church, again, residing in quotation marks, the church was rarely a reluctant partner in the business, willing that multitudes, yea, whole countries, should be brought hastily under their salvific sway by the most temporally efficient means. Thus, rulers and church used each other to further their own ends, solidify civil and spiritual control over most of Europe, and in so doing, ushered in one of the darkest periods in the history of Christianity, so-called. In short, may I say it this way, state churches did not spring organically from gospel soil. 
but were the forced growth of grafting civil and religious power into the same tree. This must be kept in mind as the backup, backdrop, sorry, of all that we have subsequently to say. Secondly, in introductory observations, related to the above, which we have just stated, the, and I must put this word in quotes again, the admission, and I will return to that word momentarily, the admission of infants to membership in the church, or quotation marks are growing apace, keeping that word in quotes as well, the admission of infants to membership in the church was not the efficient cause, the efficient cause of state churches, as alluded to previously. It was and is, however, to borrow Dr. Gill's term from his title of his most famous work on the subject, it was and is a part and pillar of such entities. The useful handmaiden, if you will, to perpetuate their existence. As Dr. Baldwin in his Baptism of Believers Only, accurately noted, of Pado-Baptists, could they carry their sentiments into complete effect, it would put an entire end to believers' baptism. For they would baptize every infant soon after it was born, nor would they allow them ever after, should they become believers, to be baptized agreeably to their own conscience. They certainly would exterminate it out of the world if they could. A sentiment not too bold by any means and perhaps an understatement. This then brings us again to that term I used a moment ago, admission. For it is indeed no admission, but rather force of the most pernicious kind. Having placed a drop or two of water upon an infant's head, summarily to pronounce them, as its practitioners most certainly do, a partaker of grace and a member of the church. And we do the Redeemer's cause and injury, I think, by acquiescing to call this by the name, this act of compulsion by the name baptism, even if we join it with the modifier infant. However, we may regret our translator's transliteration of the Greek baptizo, we should at least, as Baptists, reserve its use to that which accords fully with the example set before us in Scripture. Thus, you will permit me, I trust, in this lecture to refer to the practice under consideration in our study as infant membership, to distinguish it properly in all of our minds as that which has supplanted biblical immersion since neither the subject, that is an unconscious infant, nor the method, sprinkling, fulfill the scriptural pattern of the ordinance. Perhaps largely playing into this is my own early years of experience in the Roman Catholic communion. But it makes me particularly sensitive about the matter. It is no small thing to see your family, nay, to see an entire city given over to a blinding delusion 
that assures them of eternal safety while they live indifferent to that holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Those of you who have a similar experience and those of you who have lived in past days in Roman Catholic countries can testify to the same. With tears, you see it. With those opening explanations, I trust you will hold in view. We proceed to the discussion of the relationship of infant membership and state churches. To quote again our revered author, that is Dr. Baldwin, as a means of framing the subject, he writes, quote, Perhaps it may be thought I am trying to expose a sentiment that the Paedobaptists do not hold. That is, that grace is essential to church membership. However, one of two things is evident by their practice. Whatever their profession, he says, one of two things is evident by their actual practice. First, that grace is conveyed as above described. That is, by hereditary right from the parent and through the act of sprinkling. Or second, that grace is not essential to church membership. One of two things. To suppose the former would supersede the necessity of regeneration. To suppose the latter would be to lay the foundation for a graceless church and would leave no other difference between that and the world than what consists merely in name and external form. Which of these two suppositions is correct? Or is it both? I trust will become apparent as we move along. Again, I must say time does not permit us to trace the gradual development of the doctrine of infant membership. But you will know that most candid authorities agree that it came to its full flowering about the middle of the third century beginning in North Africa and eventually spreading throughout the West. Taking its rise from the doctrine of baptismal regeneration, and I ask you to fix that term and that principle in your mind. Taking its rise from the doctrine of baptismal regeneration, that is, that the act of baptism confers grace to the subject of that baptism. It is known by the Latin term opus operatum, the working of the work, if you will. That is, that this act confers what it symbolizes. It all too quickly gained a firm hold in church teaching. Cyprian, a bishop of Carthage during this very period, being one of its strongest advocates, that is, for baptismal regeneration, declared, along with his fellow theologians gathered in council in Carthage, declared the baptism of newborn infants to be a universal and immediate necessity. That is, they said, every infant, and as soon as practicable, ought to receive the benefit of the sacrament. The sacrament. A century and a half later, 
Augustine took up the mantle. Whatever we may say of his teaching the truth of those doctrines which we now refer to as Calvinism, he was profoundly wrong upon this subject. A century and a half later, Augustine took up the mantle and presiding over a church council in 416 A.D., went even beyond Cyprian, pronouncing anathemas, curses, against those who denied the doctrine of baptismal regeneration or who refused to bring infants to the font to receive such regeneration. This baptismal regeneration being an admixture of equal parts, pagan mysticism and Jewish ritualism, a catalyst was also needed to make it effectual. The catalyst was an intermediary administrator. One with the proper authority to perform the necessary miracle. William Palmer, in his 1865 volume titled The History and Mystery of Baptismal Regeneration, Palmer was an English Baptist writer, sums the whole matter up very nicely. Quote, Marvelous things were ascribed to the baptism of the true church. But only the true church could give baptism. Only the ministers of the true church were successors of the apostles. Water had to be consecrated by the prayer of a priest before it could wash out sin. Baptism had no saving power out of the church. But as the Orthodox was the mother church, as a mother, she gave life through baptism. Unquote. And thus, my dear friends, thus was Christian priestcraft born and justified and perpetuated a, a post-natal miracle was required to make this rite effectual to salvation. And only a duly appointed successor of Christ, duly appointed and invested with such power by the church, could accomplish the needed wonder-working. This water, this water the infant must have, and to the priest he must go, or must be brought, to obtain it. Writing later of the full outworking of this principle of priestcraft, Palmer observes concerning its perverse effects, and I wholeheartedly concur in the analysis, baptism, according to this principle, brings us into the covenant of grace. Confirmation establishes us there. The sacrament, that is, the Eucharist, seals us as Christians. The confessional helps us. And unctuous priests with oily hands stand like sentinels at the portals of the grave to send us straight to paradise if we mind and to purgatory if we do not. Only, he says, only Christians can enter into future glory. Only priests can make Christians. 
and only bishops can make priests. Unquote. If you doubt the truth of it, if you doubt the truth of it, will you accompany me to my home city and I shall easily prove it to the most hardened skeptic. You will permit me a concurring opinion by the Reverend George Barton Ide in 1851. Quote, Silently but surely, infant membership had done its work. Sapping successively the safeguards of truth and purity until by the abandonment of the principle that none but living stones should be incorporated into the house of God, the last defense gave way and a torrent of corruption flowed in. The world emptied itself into the church. There was, in fact, no longer any world. It was all church. So it was. Yet there was one more essential feature wanting at this period to complete the transformation. Exclusive, coercive power. It would soon enough be supplied in the form of kings and tyrants eager to exercise temporal power over spiritual matters and thereby to bring their people, their subjects, into a more willing but yet more slavish submission to their rule than could ever be accomplished by the sword alone. What do I mean? You see, to have power over men's bodies, while that is a desirable thing per se, it must often be enforced by arms and armies, as Imperial Rome had proved in the West for more than half a millennium. Oh, but far more desirable is to have power over men's souls. And thereby to obtain their obedience through fear of eternal loss rather than simply through fear of physical death. Oh, how much more power is there in the principle that the ruler may obtain from his subjects their implicit and lifelong obedience for fear that lacking it, they shall be eternally ruined. This coercive power would be cloaked, of course, in pious proclamations and assertions of defending the faith. So as to give all this usurping of Christ's authority the facade of spiritual legitimacy. After all, so the argument runs, what people, what people so base that could fail to appreciate a prince whose great concern, perhaps greatest concern, was for their spiritual welfare and that of their children and the suppression of error in his kingdom. No longer would the sword be used against the Christians, but finally it would be turned upon their enemies. Yes, and those who might trouble the church even from within. If the Roman Emperor Constantine's Edict of Milan in 313 
did no more than to set Christianity on par with all other religious expression in the Roman Empire. His successors, his successors were not slow to recognize the benefit to their authority of its establishment, promotion, and ultimately the suppression of all other religious expression. However, to the land of Armenia belongs the dubious honor of the first country to officially establish Christianity, that is, Roman Catholic Orthodoxy, as its state-sponsored religion under its king, Tiridates the Great, no later than 314 A.D. Nor would the century pass before Rome had its own eureka moment, with apologies to Archimedes, and discovered for itself the great blessing of exchanging an albeit frail religious liberty for a robust established church that immediately set about the business of weakening and ultimately persecuting its perceived heretics. The year was 380. And the Edict of Thessalonica, what a strange irony that is, that 300 years plus before the Apostle Paul had written two epistles to that very church to encourage them in the truth. And now error is promulgated from the same city. The year was 380, and the Edict of Thessalonica promulgated the definition, the definition of religious orthodoxy, and required the confession of that creed, and fixed that orthodoxy as the sole, official, subsidized religion of the realm. That was done under Theodosius. A quote in part from that very decree. Quote, We order, we being the Caesars of both the Eastern and Western Roman Empire, we order the followers of this law we order the followers of this law. We order the followers of this law to embrace the name of Catholic Christians. But as for the others, since in our judgment they are foolish madmen, we decree that they shall be branded with the ignominious name of heretics and shall not presume to give to their conventicles the name of churches. They will suffer. Yes, they will. They will suffer in the first place the chastisement of the divine condemnation. Well, that remained to be seen. But in the second place, they will suffer the punishment of our authority, which in accordance with the will of heaven, we shall decide to inflict. Unquote. Nor did it required long to put the whole business into effect by 384, four years later. 384, the first heretic, Priscillian, 
and several of his followers were put to the sword by these mild and gracious rulers. Four years. Thus the precedent was established. And from that day forward has the state allied with the church ever acted. Mark it down. Believe not my words. Read your history book and you will find it to ever be so. Charlemagne, that noble Christian king, blotted in song and story as the saying goes, was so smitten with the peaceful principles of the Christian religion and so eager was he to bring the Saxons under its gracious influence that he found it absolutely necessary to slaughter 4,500 of them in 782 for their rebellion against his Christianizing efforts. Thankfully, thankfully, these pagan Saxons, if all be it belatedly, realize the error of their ways and willingly, willingly submitted themselves to baptism in 785. On we might go, on we might go to narrate the effects, the Spanish Inquisition, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, the French Huguenots, England's act of uniformity that removed 2,000 ministers from their pulpits, the New England Congregationalists who learned nothing from their forefathers and who persecuted those who failed to conform to their creed. All these, and yes, countless more, could be recited as testimony of the wretched effects that result from the state church. But let me return to the earliest days of such establishments, and you have perhaps noted that thus far nothing has been said concerning a connection between infant membership and a state church. Let me then come to that. For the Caesars themselves were not backward in any way to perceive the benefit of perpetuating their subjects' allegiance to a church over which they ruled. J.M. Cramp's Baptist history provides the details, and if you will allow me an extended quotation. The Emperor Justinian, who reigned from A.D. 527 to A.D. 565, was a thorough despot. He would acknowledge no will but his own. The rights of conscience were altogether ignored by him. He claimed absolute mastery over his subjects and required them to renounce paganism and embrace Christianity because he willed it without reference to any other consideration. A notable edict of his illustrates these remarks. It enacted, quote, that such fathers as were yet unbaptized should present themselves with their wives and children and all that appertained to them in the church. And there they should cause their little ones immediately to be baptized. And the rest, as soon as they were taught the scriptures according to the canons. But, if any persons, for the sake of a public office or dignity, or to get an estate, received a fallacious baptism themselves, but in the meantime, left their wives or children or servants or any that were retainers or near relations to them in their ancient error, their goods in that case are ordered to be confiscated 
their persons punished by a competent judge and excluded from bearing any office in the commonwealth. Cramp then makes this observation upon that very fact. Thus, the fabric of infant baptism rested on two pillars. Delusion and force. Delusion inasmuch as the ceremony was supposed to be invested with regenerating and saving power. Force, as employed by the state, in the interest of the church. Oh yes, it is true they called it an apostolic institution. But that was actually an afterthought. Exorcism, unction, the sign of the cross, holy water, infant communion, and many other childishnesses were also called apostolic institutions. Not at first, but long after they were invented to conceal their real origin and prevent men from discovering their trickery, delusion, and force. Thus you have united infant church membership with state churches. The delusion had been amply provided by the corruption of the truth in the church. For more than two hundred years before Justinian's edict, for more than two hundred years, baptismal regeneration had ruled the church and made practical pagans out of pronounced Christians, even as it attempted to make pronounced Christians out of practical pagans. They were declared so, that is, Christians, by a ritual now made a sacrament. You have heard, lest you doubt of its continuing power, you have heard testimony from your own pastor of recent conversations with men in this community who affirm the salvific power of that ritual, demonstrating its enduring strength. The force, the force was supplied by the state now wedded to the church whose power to compel, that is the state's, whose power to compel practically exceeded the church's power to simply anathematize. By this time, most were willing, due to the the delusion, to have their infants so done unto. But for the remaining few reluctant, the state was prepared to remediate their reticence by the friendly persuasion of violence. As was said of Goliath's sword, so might it be said of the state's power in this, there is none like it. As Alva Hovey explained in his essay, titled Evils of Infant Baptism, published in 1880, quote, the practice of infant baptism made the partial or complete identification of church and state easy. For if the church can give to all the people in their infancy a place in her sacred enclosure, the state can easily endorse the act and it can be persuaded that is, the state, it can be persuaded to enforce the claims of the church upon the respect and support of all her children, that is, her subjects. 
if if to pagan kings made Christians in name only belongs the honor of establishing state churches for political ends, then to infant membership belongs the honor of perpetuating those state churches through the ages by constantly refreshing their ranks with new supplies of recruits who are assured of their eternal security while actually having been made in the words of Christ twofold more the child of hell. How so? How so, you ask? Dr. Gill wisely answers that question. Quote, It is, in fact, by the baptism of infants that a national church is supplied with members and is supported and is maintained. Hence, it may be truly said that infant baptism is the foundation of a national church and is indeed the very sinews, strength, and life of it. And infants, having been thus admitted members by baptism, continue such when grown up, even though most dissolute in their conduct as multitudes of them are. Yet, do not miss this, yet, even these die in the communion of the church. And thus the church and the world are united and kept together till death doth them part. If some particle of doubt remains that this infant membership sits queen forever in the realm of state churches, permit me one Further quote from the gentleman I referenced earlier, William Parker, that I think must settle the question. Though his remarks were made specific to the Church of England, they are most certainly applicable to every national church. Listen carefully. Quote, conversion, conversion, conversion makes no one a member of the English church. Ponder that statement for a moment. No one is united to it by conversion nor is conversion necessary to baptism. Regeneration in baptism is necessary to church membership. And baptism is necessary to regeneration even in adults. This is evident from the office, that is the ritual, of adult baptism in the Church of England where, quote, the remission of their sins by spiritual regeneration is prayed for, and after baptism, thanks are offered to God for their regeneration, even in adults, and in grafture into the body of Christ's church. This is the regeneration which the Church of England requires. This is baptismal grace. And this baptismal grace is supposed to be inseparable from baptism. For in every instance of baptism, thanks are offered for regenerating grace, which would sometimes at least be a mockery and a lie were not regenerating grace supposed to be a never failing accompaniment of the baptismal rite, unquote. And so it is for each and every national church. Conversion 
Conversion makes no one a member. Baptism and regeneration affected thereby through the hand-waving and ritualism of a priest. That, that is the great entrance to the national church. We might pursue this theme for countless hours through 2,000 years of history, but you will recall I had promised a connection of all this to the Master's words from Matthew 13, and so I begin to close with fulfilling that promise. The Lord's interpretation of His own parable at the request of His disciples contains this unambiguous explanation. The field is the world. The field is the world. Our Pado-Baptist friends have labored for centuries to have the Lord's mean, the Lord's words mean everything or anything, but the field is the world. In order to get the world into the church, the field is not the church by the express declaration of the Son of God. Let me repeat that statement. The field is not the church by the express declaration of the Son of God. Admission of the world into the church makes the church ere long the world. Whatever theological gymnastics the Roman church or their reforming relatives engage in to ritually regenerate their offspring into membership, their own experience proclaims the result an abject failure. And no amount of additional doctrinal hand-waving can transform the world into the church. They must, in the final analysis, resort to the expedient of statism to accomplish by coercion what they cannot by ritual. The field is the world, and the church is a separate thing altogether. But there is also also a warning here to Baptists. Once begin to let slip this grand truth that the field is the world and introduce doctrinal error or religious expedience to bring the unconverted into the church, however moral or personable they may be, ere long we shall, and we say sadly we do, bear a striking resemblance to those whom we decry as having corrupted baptism. How long will it be, how long can it be, before Baptists find it expedient either to adopt the practice of Pado-Baptists or to discard baptism altogether? I fear I fear both possibilities have already come to pass in our own lifetime given what we see around us in those that call themselves Baptists. I close with a final quote again from Dr. Cramp in relation to this principle that has distinguished Baptists at least to former days. He writes in closing his Baptist history, we gather from the teachings of the the apostles that a man should be a Christian, italics, be a Christian before he avows himself to be one. And in full accordance 
as we believe with the instructions of the New Testament, we admit none to our fellowship without a profession of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Their baptism, their baptism is at the same time a declaration of their sole reliance on the Savior and a symbol of their union with Him in His death and resurrection. A spiritual, vital union. Our churches, our churches so constituted, profess to be societies of believers, congregations of saints. May it ever be so for us. There you have it, though it may be succinct in terms of coverage of material John would like to cover, I'm sure. Nevertheless, uh, there is the succinct statement of the parallel between infant membership and uh, state churches. <clears throat> Someone, Presbyterian, years ago, a friend of mine, uh, pointed me to a phrase which really stood in opposition to his own doctrine, but he pointed it out in some of the writings of some Baptists. I wish I could recall who it was. He said, there must be a distinction made. There's a difference between a state church and a church state. State church is the thing that John has just described for us and given us some brief history. State church. Church state is a desirable thing. That is that men independently, individually as citizens in a state be church men, true Christians and active Christians. He pointed me to this distinction between a state church and a church state. And uh, it's certainly true. We would desire a church state, that is, that our state be in the condition or, or be, be a, uh, a body of believing men, but not that the state determine the church and be commingled, as our brother has so graphically described. There's so, so much material, even in this that single lecture, which uh, I know pains Brother John to, to condense so much into such a small space. But uh, there is, even in that small space, a tremendous amount of knowledge and understanding may do well for some of you who are not as familiar with church history to go back and listen again slowly uh, in a device where you can stop it and control it listen again to that whole lecture and run down some of the names, dates, edicts, things that he referred to to give yourself a better understanding of that part of history. As he said, it does typically, uh, to cover that subject, typically takes at least a semester or more than a semester at a college level, which of course would include assigned volumes of reading uh, to get even a modicum of understanding of all of that. But the bottom line that I want you to have from his uh, knowledge and expertise in those areas is the connection between infant membership and church state. That connection goes all the way back. And he shows us why that, that was a companion uh, doctrine. So, much learned, I hope, and uh, much appreciated. Brother John, thank you so much for, for your sharing of all that good knowledge for us.
those, if you have friends there are along the way, as you, if you encounter folk who, who seem to be either confused or on the wrong side of this subject, encourage them to go to Sermon Audio and get the, get the lecture. It'll always be there, posted there. It'll always be available. Be, uh, use those resources. Encourage people to go to Sermon Audio. And uh, look at anything that we produce here at the church, but especially John's lectures. They're there for you.